Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to New Books and Sports, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Paul Nepper, and today we'll be talking to Bob Kuska, the author of Shake and Bake, The Life and Times of NBA Great Archie Clark. Bob, welcome to the show. Hi, Paul. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. Um, I wonder if you could start by telling our listeners a little bit about yourself. Um, well, I've, I've been um, I've published three books. Um, Shake and Bake is the third one. Um, the, and that just came out uh, in February. And if you don't have a copy, please consider purchasing one. Um, but prior to that, I did a book on the origins of black basketball in America. It's really the first in-depth um, book to, to do that. It was called Hot Potato. Um, and then after that, I did one on, again, kind of a unique book on small college basketball. Um, and I focused on a, a college in central West Virginia and took a look at, it's, it's a then and now book, and, and I, I took a look at how um, the community used to rally around uh, the, the college before television and what's happened sort of in the post-ESPN era. Um, my day job, I write about science for a living, and um, I've done that for over 30 years. And I'm now, I continue on writing about basketball. I've got another book at in the works that's that's getting close to completion and it's on the NBA so how did this project with Archie Clark come about uh, well I just finished up the, uh, the small college basketball book and I wanted to do an NBA book and Archie was my favorite player as a kid um, I grew up in the in the 70s and um, so I contacted Archie and we set up a time to talk by phone and uh, Archie said, you know, let me think about it. And, um, and he agreed. And then just by, by pure luck, he happened to be, he came down to, uh, to Washington for a Washington Wizards ceremony. Um, and we were able to meet in Washington and spend a couple of hours talking about the book and how, we, how we'd approach it. And um, we had a good rapport and, and, and onward we went. So when you're doing research from this for this book, and and it's it's clear um, you did extensive research beyond talking to Archie and others, um, certainly newspapers, etc. Um, do you co- do you kind of come back to Archie and ask for comments on on things that you found? Um, do you after you've written portions of the book or the whole book, do you run it by Archie to to see what he thinks or to make sure it's accurate? How does, how does that interaction work? A little bit of all. Um, what, I, what I did when I started the book um, is Archie and I, we set up a time uh, for a telephone interview. I know he's in, he's, lives just outside of Detroit, and, and I'm uh, in the Washington, D.C. area, way out in West Virginia. Um, so we obviously couldn't meet in person. And um, so we set up a time to talk by phone, and, and I kind of got a lay of his career. Um, and in life. And so what I did, that kind of gave me a, the general themes for the book. And then I went 
Um, you know, I would spend a lot of time at the Library of Congress going through uh, newspaper reels and, and so on to really pin down the facts. Uh, you know, I found with a lot of oral histories um, or, or biographies in which um, it's, it's told in the first person, um, a lot of times the facts can be a little bit loose. So I really want to make sure that everything was accurate. Um, I, as, as a part of that, I also did interviews with, with numerous players um, that Archie played with or, or were involved in the era, as well as magazine uh, work as well. And court cases, yeah, also court cases. I, I really did dig, dig a lot. And, and so what I did is, is I gathered all this information. Um, I would go back and ask Archie if I could you possibly fill in a blank here. This is, this is what I've discovered. In, uh, you know, sort of based on what you've told me and what I've what I've researched, um, what's your recollection? Um, and then I would put together a draft, and each draft, um, uh, Archie had trouble down email him chapters to begin with, but he had trouble downloading them. So I would print them out and send them off to him, and then we would we would talk. Got it. Were, were there were there any ever any major discrepancies between Archie's uh, Archie's accounts of events uh, and and what you found in through your research, you know, not really. Archie has a very good memory. Um, you know, there were there were some small things, but um, but no, everything was was. I, I think yeah. So there there were, there would be small discrepancies in details. Um, you know, dates, details, things like that. But but for the most part, the general themes um, and and what Archie remembered were totally accurate. Right. Um. Archie was uh, a fighter, um, as you portray in the book, and and I mean that in a, a positive way, um, and and not a fight, not not physical, right? I I don't mean he was getting into fistfights in the court, um, but he was he was a tough-minded individual who um, was intent on standing up for his rights, really, at a time when uh, ball players you know, due to the reserve clause and, and um, just the, the contractual situations in basketball didn't have many rights. Um, could you talk about his childhood a little bit and, and maybe how he developed that, that toughness that was characteristic of his career? Yeah, he came from a family that, that had been in, in Arkansas and, and during World War II, um, you know, there were jobs available in the um, GM Auto, the auto factories outside of Detroit. So his father took the family up there. Archie was probably just you know, maybe four years old when the family went up there. Um, and they ended up in uh, a little town or outside of, outside of Southwest Detroit called Ecorse. And they lived in public housing that was built by the automaker um, for, for, its, for its black workers. Um, so Archie grew up there. He was a very perceptive kid, um, and um, you know he he looked at at the situation as a, as a young black kid growing up, and, and really the way that the world operated. Um, uh, he he grew up poor. There were, there were lots of kids in the family, and um, you know it was it was difficult um, at, at times. And and so you know, he 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 knew the he, he he always loved sports. He always wanted to be a baseball player, um, and he got very active. Um, Playing um, playing baseball in e-course, um, but basketball was never really his game. It was something that he played and he was pretty good at because he was athletic. But but again, baseball was going to be his ticket. 
Um, and that's kind of interesting because um, in his senior year in high school, <laughs> he graduated midterm, so really in the middle of the season. I mean, he really had no, no plans for basketball. Um, but what happened when he got out of high school is, um, well, like a lot of kids who grew up in, in uh, back, essentially factory towns, Archie always imagined that he would get a job working in a factory just like everyone else. And, and those were good jobs, too, unionized jobs. Um, and unfortunately, at, right about the time he got out of high school, um, there was a real economic slowdown. And, and so Archie was unemployed and he was a member of a, a community or a group um, of, of friends, which sort of in modern parlance, you might, you might term a, a gang, um, but it was more just a um, just a group of kids kind of watching each other's backs. Um, there were a lot of different towns nearby where the kids, say from River Rouge, would look at kids from Ecorse, and there'd be there'd be uh, a potential conflict between them, between the two. So it was always good to travel in groups. Um, but Archie was elected as the president of that uh, of that group, and he quickly realized that this was not the future that he that he dreamed of as a kid. Um, so it just so happened, um, and this is recounted in the book, that a friend came up to him one day and said, hey, look, let's just get out of here. we got to you know, go see the world. And, and at the time, Archie had a brother who had joined the army and was overseas stationed in Germany. And the brother would send home uh, letters talking about all that he had seen in Europe. And, and the buddy said, why don't we do what your brother did? Why don't, why don't we join the army? We can join up on the, uh, on the buddy plan. Um, so Archie thought that was a great idea. They went down to the recruiter station, um, and they had to take a test to, to, to get into the Army. Um, so they both did, went home, waited a couple of weeks, and sure enough, Archie got a letter in the mail that uh, congratulated him and said, you know, please re report uh, such and such, and uh, you are now a member of the United States Army. Um, so Archie was stoked, went outside, looked for his buddy to see if he got the letter too, and but he was kind of cool about it because, as it turned out, he flunked the test. So Archie was kind of on his own and, and went into the, the military. Um, he, uh, he ended up being stationed in Korea. Um, this is right after the Korean War. Um, it was a grueling couple of years there and, um, again, recounted in the book. And, um, but where everything turned for Archie is he was – at the end of his stint in the Army, he was um, stationed at Andrews, Andrews Air Force Base, uh, just outside of Washington, D.C. Um, though it was an Air Force Base, primarily, there was a small Army unit, and, and Archie was, um, would show VIPs around Washington. That was sort of his, his gig at that time. And um, because he had some downtime, he would go to the Air Force gym, and he would Play, play basketball, and he was quickly recognized as being one of the top athletes in the, on the floor. So the Air Force coach asked Archie, hey, how would you like to join our team? And Archie thought that was kind of ludicrous because he was an Army guy. Um, but they said, no, no, don't worry about it. We've, we've done this in the past. Uh, just go back, um, ask your, your supervisor whether, um, whether he would sign a form um, allowing that to happen. And um, so Archie did and sure enough, the, uh, his supervisor did sign it, and Archie's the army guys start on the Air Force team. And um, while he was doing that, he was discovered by um, uh, 
the coach of the team was a University of Minnesota grad um, who contacted um, the coach at, at, at University of Minnesota and said, you've really got to take this kid, Archie Clark. Um, so at the time, Minnesota was trying to integrate. Um, they, had, they, they had signed two black players, including Lou Hudson. Um, and so Archie was tendered a, a scholarship offer and he accepted it and went on to Minneapolis where he uh, starred for the Golden Gophers for, for three seasons. And, uh, that took him right up to the NBA draft. You know, Bob, wanna, I, I always say um, the best sports books are, are not about sports or put another way are about a lot more than sports. Uh, you know, they offer a lens into greater societal issues or, or psychological issues or whatever it may be. Um, and I think this this book is a great example of that. One of the, you know, one of the kind of themes throughout the book certainly is is race. And um, for those that don't know much about the history of race in the NBA, um, you know, by Archie came in the league in 1966, conditions had had certainly gotten better. You know, with with uh, the, you know the, the league had been integrated for. I guess 16 years by then and um, uh, conditions for African-Americans and opportunities for African-Americans had improved, but, but uh, race was still an issue. So what was the state of, 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 you know, the opportunity for African-American ball players when Archie came in the league? Yeah. So the, the league originally drew the drew the color line, which was a very odd thing to do. This is in the uh, the precursor to the, uh, the NBA, the BAA. They drew the, the color line because um, really they it it was a business decision. Um, they they were a little bit concerned about uh, about catching on with the public with with, with black players. It was just the, the racist um, status quo back then. But more importantly, to um, was was the Harlem Globetrotters. Um, Abe Saperstein, the owner of the, the, the Trotters, he had first call on all the, the top black players. Um, and at the time, because the situation was ten, tenuous um, for pro basketball, um, they a lot of the teams really needed um, the very, very popular Harlem Globetrotters to come in and play a, a doubleheader for them so that they could uh, um, make some extra money at the, at the gate. But that fell away by about 1950, um, in 1950, with um, the drafting of Chuck Cooper and Earl Lloyd. And I remember I, I, I met with Earl Lloyd once several years ago, and, and also another player uh, who played with Earl named Bob Wilson, um, was an early black, black player. And they both told me that at the time, black players were expected um, to do the dirty work. They, they weren't in there to score. They were supposed to get in there, set the picks. Uh, rebound and then get the ball back out to the to the white stars who could shoot the at that time one-handed uh, set shots. Um, so that changes with with the arrival in in '56. I do believe '56 or '57 of Maurice Stokes, who was so talented. I mean, it was clear that things were going to change. You had Bill Russell in the college game, Will Chamberlain, and, you know, Elgin Baylor, Oscar Robertson coming through. So it had changed. You, you, in getting into the 60s, you did have some black stars, but there was still that concern. How are we going to market a game 
if it's dominated by black players. So what they did is the owners in their infinite wisdom um, came up with a quota system. It was an unwritten rule that you wanted to have a racial balance on your team. And that was really the solution. So by 66, when Archie came in, that was very much the, the status quo. And um, when Archie was drafted, he was taken in the third round. And and that was really because the, the unit, well, Archie had been all Big Ten in his senior year and had put, put up big numbers. Um, but colleges back then pushed certain players as All-Americans, and, and Lou Hudson was the one that was being pushed, not Archie. And that's why he fell to the third round, um, much to his disadvantage, um, because the Lakers selected him and really didn't have any plans to keep him, um, as, as the book starts out and, and shows. Um, he got Archie got lucky um, in that the player they planned to keep, a white player named John Wetzel, broke his wrist at the end. Um, and so the, the question that the Lakers faced was, do we want to keep another black player to fill Wetzel, what, the position they felt that Wetzel was going to have? And they decided to do that. And that was sort of the launch of Archie's career. Yeah, I love, I love that you started with the, the book with that for a few reasons. One, because... Um... It shows how uh, how easily Archie's career could have never happened, right? I mean, as an African American, uh, if if they had cut him, um, it's possible he he would have got he would not have received another opportunity and would have just uh, you know dwindled away in in the Eastern League or something, or or gone back to work in the factory. Um, but it's also uh, fascinating because it's a real snapshot of of the power dynamic between teams management and and players at that time how you know how Lumo's kind of strong arms Archie into accepting this you know below market value really $11,000 contract um what what was the power dynamic like at that time between um owners you know between the teams and in particular, unestablished players like Archie. Uh, basically, the the owners held pr- most of the cards. I mean, there are, with a few exceptions, um, but the system was set up for for management to dominate labor. Um, it, you know, it goes all the way back to the eighteen seventies and 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 just the establishment of the National League and, and baseball, and and that paradigm has been used. Um, it was. Baseball famously got its, its antitrust exemption in 1922, um, and, and so the other leagues, without any approval, just kind of piggybacked that antitrust exemption, and that allowed them to allowed leagues such as the NBA to operate a reserve system, which had never been scrutinized legally in the courts, um, but but it, it operated, and it was sort of this uh, you know something that that players were were told. You're, you need to you need to focus on your game. Don't worry about the business end. Um, and what what happens in '66 when Archie starts to come in is the contracts start to get big. Um, the year Archie came in, um, the top draft choice was Cassie Russell, of the, who, who went to the New York Knicks, um, who got what was considered then to be a pretty outrageous contract. Um, and what was different is Cassie Russell was one of the few rookies um, to have an agent. 
um, who was able to negotiate a, a richer contract. The next year, Bill Bradley got a really big contract. Same story. He had an agent to represent him. But for Archie in 1966, coming in as a third round draft choice, it you just weren't going to have an agent uh, represent you. Um, you know, there, there are stories that, that go around about about lesser players, not a, you know, so not a Russell, Cassie Russell or not a Bill Bradley, but somebody taken in the second or into the first round um, trying to to bring in an agent and the, the general managers and owners just flat out wouldn't talk to them. I mean, that was a quick way to, to get yourself booted out of the league and ever play. Um, so for Archie, and that this is how the book opens, um, Lou Mose, who was the general manager of the Lakers, says, I just happened to be in, in Minneapolis. And, um, you know, he fully expected, Mose did, to sign Archie within a matter of minutes. This is the contract that you're going to pull out this, dog-eared contract and said, this is, this is our offer and, you know, take it or leave it. And uh, in this case, Archie had to take it. And so Archie remembered this moment, just remembered how, how he got rolled by Lumos and, and really vowed never again. Um, and the book goes on to show how Archie went to rookie camp with the Lakers thinking that he had made the team. But he, so he came back for, for the regular training camp. And that's when Lumos, he stopped in at the, Lakers headquarters um, to, to ask Mose where he would be staying. And Mose said, what are you talking about? You're not, you're not staying anywhere. When it, in fact, um, you probably have a better chance making the team in Chicago or Baltimore. Um, so, so yeah, Archie was not in their plans to, to, to make the team. And, and again, a lot of that had to do with, with uh, the, the racial balance so one of the you know interesting themes throughout this book is is this power dynamic between management and players and and the contractual relationships um, and it's fascinating to see how Archie goes from that twenty five year old rookie who gets ruled by Lou Mose to this sophisticated um, you know well informed veteran who uses his leverage. Uh, about as well as anybody did in the game at that time. Um, so what, how, did, how did that transformation uh, take place for Archie in terms of both his, his business acumen and his ability to use his leverage? So as a rookie, um, Archie got a little playing time um, at the beginning of the season, but by mid-season of his rookie year, he was starting in the backcourt alongside Jerry West. Um, he then went on and had a very, there were a lot the, the Lakers were bitten by a lot of injuries, um, heading into the playoffs. And so Archie really emerged in that playoff series. Um, and so Archie was thinking, you know, I really do have a future in the league. And he worked out that summer with a guy named Woody Salisbury. And Woody is, um, a few years ahead of Archie, uh, he'd been a rookie of the year in the, in the NBA. And he uh, had a falling out with Bill Russell. He had been playing in Woody had been playing in for the Boston Celtics, um, and that falling out actually was over a woman. It wasn't over basketball. Um, so Woody was a free agent and was hoping to to hook back on with a, another NBA team. And Archie started working out with them that summer. And Woody Salisbury was a very perceptive guy. And at that time, uh, it was expected that the black players, veteran black players, would 
would kind of look out for, for the rookies and kind of teach them the ropes. And so working out with, with Salisbury, Salisbury started telling Archie, this is how the system works. Um, what you need to be cognizant of is your productivity. That's what management wants. They look at your numbers, your stat line. Um, so you want to always make sure that you, you do the best you can um, to really bolster those numbers so that, so that when you go into contract negotiations, you have something to show them that they can objectively evaluate. Um, at that time, most of the, it was changing, but most of the players were uh, on one-year contracts, and so they would go in every summer to, to re-sign. And, um, and that was the case with Archie after his, his breakout rookie season. And um, so Salisbury taught him how to, how to move forward, and it's, you know, it's an incredible story. He goes from making 11000 getting no rookie bonus, um, to uh, getting a thirty-five thousand dollar contract, and maybe jumping a little bit to jumping a little bit ahead here, but he ends up um, making over a hundred thousand dollars in his third season. And hundred thousand dollars then was the, the the standard for for superstardom. And uh, you know, again, this is a third round draft choice who almost didn't make the Lakers. Bob, you mentioned um, early in our call that you that Archie was your favorite player as a kid. Uh, what was it that you liked about Archie or his game? Um, Archie would, would, he would term his game out. He said he was a quarterback. We would call it a playmaker today, but he was the guy who ran the show. He was very much in control. In fact, um, when he went on and played for the, uh, the now Washington Wizards, formerly the Baltimore Bullets, uh, his teammates there used to call him the general. He was the, the general who, who took care of things and, and kind of, very much led everyone else. But on top of that, Archie had a very kind of a little bit of a flamboyant game. Um, Archie developed some moves, some signature moves. One is, is we now know it as the shake and bake. Um, it's a series of stutter steps um, to kind of freeze his man, his defender. He approaches his defender, dribbling the ball and stutter stepping to freeze his defender. And then he crosses over. And so it's one of the, the, the first great crossover moves. And if you talk to old timers who remember Archie's move, they'll tell you that it's probably the greatest crossover move ever because Archie, unlike a lot of modern players, didn't carry the ball on the crossover. It was very, just a very tight move. Um, That would create space for him to um, shoot a mid-range jump shot or go to the hoop. Um, Also, another thing about Archie is when he was playing Playing that summer with Woody Salisbury, Woody's about six seven, with very long arms, and Archie's just six two. So Archie was having trouble getting his shot off to begin with. So Archie developed what would be, um, at least as remembered by other NBA veterans of Archie's era, as the first step back move. Which, if you think about basketball the way it's played today, you got the step back move and you've got the crossover move. Those are two main main moves of the modern game and, and Archie was very much uh, one of the originators of both. Absolutely. So within a couple of seasons, Archie went from a guy who, you know, the general manager Lou Moe's was, was pretty sure was not going to make the team, um, to an NBA All Star on a Lakers team that included the likes of Jerry West and Gail Goodrich in the backcourt. Uh and and then of course soon at, right after that 
um, he was traded to this to uh, Philadelphia. Um, how did that trade come about? Well, the Lakers were owned by Jack Ken Cook, and Jack Ken Cook wanted a championship team uh, for, for a variety of reasons. It was just kind of went with his kind of flamboyant nature. Um, and the problem for the Lakers all along, they had Jerry West and they had Elgin Baylor, but they didn't have a dominant center. Um, at the time, Will Chamberlain was done with, with the 76ers. He had had a, a conflict with the owner of, of the, the 76ers, Irv Kozlov, about his contract. Um, Chamberlain had believed that, that Kozlov's partner, who had died of a heart attack, um, had promised Chamberlain a third of the, the seven, ownership stake in the 76ers. And when, the, when Kozlov's friend died of the heart attack, Chamberlain raised it with, with Kozlov, and Kozlov said, I don't know what you're talking about. And at the time, um, players, I mean, it's, it's still the case today, but, but players could not own um, a portion of an NBA team. So nothing was on paper. Well, Chamberlain took that, felt like he had been cheated, and he, he wanted out. He wanted out of Philadelphia in the worst way and um, felt like he wanted to go to California. Um, Wilt had a pretty large contract as well, um, and it, it took somebody like Jack Ken Cook who would be willing to pay all that money to bring Chamberlain to Los Angeles. It's, so with that sort of as prelude, um, the deal had pretty much been set up that, that if Jack Ken Cook was willing to to sign Chamberlain to a new contract at the rate that Chamberlain wanted, um, that the 76ers would be willing to take some some Lakers. Among those, the, the, the player, one of the, the, the players that they wanted was Archie. So it was the three three players that they chose. Um, Jerry Chambers, who great player at University of Utah, um, and a top draft choice. Uh, Archie and Daryl Imhoff, who's a veteran center who had been an early draft choice um, in back in about 1960. And um, but Archie was a key player in this, and Archie realized that that the 76ers wanted him under contract before they would trade Chamberlain. And so Archie, using everything he learned from Salisbury, realized that he had leverage over the Lakers and was able to use that to up his his salary to over $100,000, which is what I just mentioned earlier. Um, and so all of a sudden, Archie is making, is one of the highest paid guards in the NBA by his third season. So after, of course, you played in Philly for a few years um, and, then, and then moved on. He ended up, in total, Archie played for, five teams over 10 seasons, which um, is a lot of movement for a player his caliber. Um, you know, Archie was a two-time All-Star. He was uh, he made second-team All-NBA one year. Um, and especially back then, there wasn't as much player movement as there is now. Why do you think a player of his caliber bounced around as much as he did? I think one of the important things to take into consideration is really trajectory. And that is trajectory that you come into the league. Archie was not a number one draft choice. He was not somebody that the marketing department got around from the get-go. They didn't hand him the basketball. Um, So Archie had to fit in and he became a very accomplished player. And that's why the 76ers wanted him. 
But what the book also shows, it's the term that a lot of players still use today, and it's very apropos, and that is, in the NBA, if you're going to make it, you need to find the right fit. And the 76ers weren't a good fit for him. Um, you know, as the book goes and, and, and talks about, um, Jack Ramsey, who was a great college coach, um, was a rookie NBA coach who's just learning, he's learning the ropes. Um, he wanted to adapt his college coaching system to the NBA. Um, and, and what he ended up doing is he subtracted a lot of really talented players, um, and really set up the, 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 the famous uh, 76ers in the early 70s that set up, that set the record for the, the longest or at the most losing season in NBA history. That was set up by Ramsey. Um, and so Archie realized that he really needed to get out of Philadelphia, that it was a bad setup. And so um, his value was still high. Um, he was putting up good numbers with the, with the 76ers. He just wasn't appearing in all-star games. Um, and so he got traded to the, the Bullets, where the fit was very, very good. He got there. Gene Shu, who was the coach of the Bullets, said, I need a veteran playmaker, and kind of handed Archie the ball. Um, not only that, Archie was playing with Wes Unseld, um, who's an undersized, but a pretty established young center with a phenomenal outlet pass, which allowed Archie to, to run the fast break and, and, um, and really just shine. And that's when he, all of a sudden he's an all-star again. He, not only that, he's a second team all pro. So what happened is the bullets started, they made a trade. They got Elvin Hayes. So suddenly they've got. Elvin Hayes, Wes Unseld, Archie, they drafted Phil Chenier in the hardship draft. Phil Chenier was, had star written all over him. And so all of a sudden that the, the bullets are gearing up and Archie gets paid. He gets a, Archie gets into a contract dispute with the bullets, um, stands his ground, and eventually wins. Archie, his, this case goes to arbitration. Archie's the first NBA player to go to arch, arbitration. Um, and um, in a really kind of interesting story he uh he ends up winning he gets a big a big contract offer from the bullets um and then as happens with all nba players archie got hurt and so with the, the book goes from there talking about that the challenge is once you've got a chronic injury and the bullets realized that that archie was was getting older and he's now damaged goods um fortunately for luck for for archie um, Bill Russell was now the coach for the Seattle Supersonics and had said, if Archie Clark's ever available, I want him. I want him to play for me. So the Bullets were looking to get rid of Archie and Bill, Bill Russell took him. But when Archie was in Seattle, he realized that he was pretty much, um, with his chronic injury, it was a, a shoulder problem, that, that he was pretty much looking at staring retirement uh, in, in the face. And, and so he... He finished that one season with Seattle and then just added another season with Seattle, with, with Detroit the following year, and then retired. I had, I had mentioned to you that I heard an interview with Walt Frazier a few years ago in which he was asked which players from his era don't receive enough recognition. And, of course, he for, at first only half-jokingly said all of them, um, but then went on to name a few specifically. Actually, I, I, the, Phil Chenier was one of them, and, and, and the other was, was Archie, Archie Clark. Um, and you know, as me, for me personally, as a huge Knicks fan, that, that 
obviously I have great respect for Walt Frazier. That really resonated with me. Um, does Archie feel like he doesn't receive enough credit or recognition for his career? Um, Archie's a pretty humble guy. I, I gotta say, I mean, I, I, I would say no. I mean, Archie's, Arch, Archie's had a great life and, and he, he realizes that. Um, you know, I think that he would have liked to have been a first round draft choice. I mean, there's a little bit of, you know, why didn't the, why didn't University of Minnesota promote me a little bit? Um, and that would have made his entry into the league a lot easier. Not only that, if he had been a first-round draft choice, perhaps the marketing department would have gotten around him. I mean, if you think about it, he was with the Lakers, and all the attention went to Baylor and, and West, and, and, and rightfully so. Um, you know, he gets to Philadelphia, and the marketing department there has decided that their, 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 their new star, now that Chamberlain was gone, was going to be Billy Cunningham. So it was Billy Cunningham and then Hal Greer. Um, and then Archie was sort of, you know, an afterthought. Um, he got to Baltimore and for a brief period, he was, he was kind of the man there. And, and then, you know, all of a sudden he's got Elvin Hayes and, and some other phenomenal players around him. But Archie would say that that's fine. That was fine with him. All Archie ever wanted to do was win. He was in it to win. He wanted to win a championship. And so, Baltimore was a great situation for him, Baltimore slash Washington. And, and in fact, that team, that new, the nucleus of that team did go on to, to win a national, uh, win an NBA championship. But again, you know, as time marches on and you, you, you're going to pick up a, a chronic injury, um, it's going to limit what, you, what you're able to do on the court. There is that, that battle. And, and that's what the book goes into. Um, you know, I've got to say, in writing the book, I've had some people say to me, well, you know, you don't go enough into his personal life. That that was never really on the table. When Archie and I talked about doing the book, we wanted to focus on the business, because that the business of basketball, because that, that angle had never really been done. And 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 so that's what we did. And, and that's what makes Shake and Bake a little unique than, than most books, is it really does open up and show you how that, how the business of basketball um, was transacted in, in the 1960s into the 70s, right up to the, the merger, which is the period when modern basketball, everything we know today, was really born. Uh, it brought the advent of free agency and um, big contracts and the merger of the NBA, ABA, and a, sort of a different style of basketball and, and so on. Yeah, you know, I realized as I asked the question about you know, Walt Frazier recognizing him and, and whether Archie uh, feels he doesn't receive enough recognition, that's some pretty damn good recognition, right? I mean, if you're ultimately, if you're uh, uh, an elite athlete, I think, um, yes, of course you want the praise and adulation from fans and it's nice to be remembered, but when one of the best players and even, you know, at the best, same position as you of your generation um, speaks that highly of you when when a guy with the reputation of a Bill Russell um, you know lets your team know if this guy is ever available I want him um, and, and that's that's about really that's about as good a recognition as, as you could get I would think um, and I think also you know the, the fact that he did bounce around a lot um, has probably uh, affected the way he is remembered and that there's he's not he's not necessarily associated with one particular team um you know and maybe not 
brought back to team events the way, you know, guys of, of, to, to think of his generation again, I, I, my fallback is the Knicks. And of course they won two championships, but you know, guys like, uh, Frazier and Reed and the Busher and Bradley, they spent, you know, eight, 10 years with the franchise. So in, in addition to winning there, they, there's a greater association just because they were there longer. Um, but I'm, I'm glad you brought up Archie's injury because, um, and, and, and I have to say, I, I loved, uh, I love the, the, how you focus on the business side of the sport. You know, I've read many basketball biographies, many sports biographies in general. And yes, it's always interesting to learn about people's personal lives and their individual stories. And there's some of that with Archie, certainly with his background. Um, but it was, it was very interesting to me, again, as I said, to, to use Archie's career to take a look at some of the bigger issues going on, um, specifically, again, I keep coming back to this, the, the power relationship between ownership and player. And one way that was demonstrated was through injuries. Um, can you talk a little bit about, it, it's so different, you know, now I was struck, of course, now in the era of load management and, 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 and the power that the players have to look back at, at the way players, management, and owners looked at injuries back then and dealt with injuries back then. Can you talk a little, about that a little bit? Yeah, I did an interview with Archie's teammate um, in Philadelphia, Wally Jones, and which really, really stuck with me. Wally had um, come up and he's telling me that, you know, we were told you got to play. If you're injured, you have to play for the team. Um, you know, it, it was all about, as long, you know, unless unless somebody shot you with a gun or you, you know you couldn't walk, you were expected to play. And with Archie, and think back to him playing with Woody Salisbury and Salisbury telling him about productivity. Archie arrives in Philadelphia and says to Wally Jones, "No, you don't have to play. Um, you know you, what you want to do is you want to you want to get out on the court when you're able to play at your best." Um, and he tried to, to teach that to, to the other players on the team, which didn't endear him to management because management, again, just wanted players out there. If, if the team is, if the 76ers are going to play in Phoenix and Billy Cunningham is the draw, they want Billy Cunningham on the court, um, playing, um, they don't want him sitting out, but the, yeah, the concept of load management was considered to be ludicrous, Back in the, the 1970s, there's just no way it could happen, and management management wouldn't allow it. I mean, there's just it was an impossibility. So players really did it. The players kind of put their foot down and, and would say, "I can't play tonight," really at their own potential peril. And the book talks about um, a case a, a couple years, I think it's Archie's third season in Philadelphia, in which Wally Jones took that to heart and said. I can't play. I've got calcium deposits in my knee. I just, <laughs> and so he sat out for a while. And really that was the end of Wally Jones, who's from Philadelphia. We went to Villanova is very beloved in the city. Uh, their, their general manager shipped him out. And that was, that was it for him. Um, he fell out of grace because he wouldn't get on the court and play with calcium deposits in his knee. Unbelievable. Um, Bobby, can you give us a kind of, uh, 
preview as you said you're working or almost finished with with another book about that era can you can you give us a, a brief preview of, of what to expect yeah so this actually goes back to to shake and bake and, and when i started the book um you know because archie's not he's not oscar robertson or walt frazier he's not remembered the same way um i was a little bit concerned about about marketing the book and so Archie and, and also the editor at the uh, University of Nebraska Press that published the Shake and Bake, um, we decided it would be the life and times of Archie Clark. And what happened is, um, as mentioned, I interviewed Archie and you know, chronicled his, his career, but the times part just completely exploded on me in a very, very good way. Um, I talked to a lot of uh, ABA owners, uh, administrators, um, NBA folks as well um, in the front office um, who basically told me how everything worked um, and, and gave me insight into how the, the leagues battled each other. Um, I contacted somebody who is a lawyer in Dallas who had been involved with a, early on with the, the ABA franchise in Dallas, who was the league secretary. He sent me all the league meeting notes, minutes from the, the league meetings. Um, through the first four or five seasons. Um, I got all these incredible primary documents about the league. Long story short, I mean, I could go on a little bit longer about that, um, is I ended up writing a very long manuscript and University of Nebraska Press wasn't gonna publish something that long. So we decided to, to break it into two. And so I wrote what's published in Shake and Bake is Archie Clark's story, but all the, the Times part really talking about the era um, and the NBA ABA war is going to be the second book, um, which the title will be Balls of Confusion, like the old Temptations song. Um, and and uh, it's, so it's pretty much written. I just gotta gotta write a few more chapters, and uh, it'll be it'll be a go. Well, I certainly look forward to it. I love the name too, by the way. Um, but I, I look forward to it because I, I really enjoyed uh, Shake and Bake. Um, you know, as I've said, it's Archie's story, his personal story is very interesting, but um, what, you know, what makes the, the book so rich is uh, just how, how you go into the business aspect of the game at that time and um, just that dynamic between team and owner um, in so many ways. And, and of course, just some of the, you know, I, I was fascinated just by some of the um, details of of daily life in the NBA at that time, um, from you know, of course, from hobbling through injuries on the court, but also uh, the travel schedule is crazy. You know how how they would, uh, the, you know, the games would end; <laughs> they'd have to literally run out the door of of, of the locker room to catch a flight that, to get in at at God knows what hour in the morning at their next location. Um, so. Uh, I think a, a lot of that, those are the type of things that made it such a great book. Um, once again, the name of Bob's book is Shake and Bake, The Life and Times of NBA Great Archie Clark. Um, and, you know, if you uh, if you love the history of the game like I do or want to learn more about it or or just interested in the even, you know, uh, contractual issues and 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 that type of thing, um, definitely check it out. Uh, Bob, I have one last question for you that I like to ask all of my guests. That is, what is your all-time favorite sports book? 
Well, this one might surprise you. It's a book. It's also published by University of Nebraska Press. Um, it came out a, a few years ago. It's the autobiography of uh, another forgotten basketball legend. Um, his name's Billy the Hill McGill, who is uh, the, the originator of the jump hook. Um, McGill was a tremendous uh, high school star in Los Angeles and went on to, to shine at University of Utah. Um, but he blew out his knee and ended up playing his pro career on a on basically one leg. Um, but he was a he was a first round draft choice coming out of Utah, and uh, because of his injuries, it was just tough for him to adapt to the NBA. And and, and kind of amplifying your your point, I think sometimes you can learn a lot more about a system, about a, an organization, by focusing on people who are in the middle. Um, not not the super not the superstars who who don't have as as tough as a, a job to to negotiate contracts. Um, and so for Billy McGill, it just kind of tells the slice of life story. And you know things didn't always go well for him. He ended up being homeless and uh, kind of pulled his life back together. And the book um, was was a collaboration with a writer named Eric Brock. B-R-A-C-H. And Eric did an outstanding job telling the story. Billy, if you like, if you like good stories, this is it. Um, definitely get the book. Thank you. I will, I will definitely check that out. All right. Well, Bob, thanks again so much for coming on. Uh, it was great to talk to you about the book. Um, and, and best of luck with, uh, with the next book. Well, thank, thanks so much for having me. And uh, yeah, I can't wait to get the other one done.